Ebola. It's the disease that captured a global attention in 2014 when there was the world's largest outbreak, affecting three countries in West Africa. The disease flew to the United States, causing concern that it might spread here. But the world is currently facing the second largest outbreak, focused in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You just might not have heard about it because it hasn't gotten as much media attention as the one in 2014. As of June 1st, there have been 1,900 confirmed cases of Ebola and 1,245 confirmed Ebola deaths. So a quick notice before we continue with this episode, although you've heard Wyatt Massey's voice for the past couple episodes here and there with some additions from um, our editor, Alan Etzler, or our special edition on uh, 72 Hours, this is actually going to be Wyatt's last episode uh, Wyatt left the news post um, recently for a position with Report for America. He joins the Chattanooga Times Free Press this week, where he'll cover religion. Now, back to the episode on Ebola. A team from Battelle's international response team recently went to the DRC to help train local scientists and responders on tests for Ebola samples. A member of that team just recently returned from Liberia two weeks ago where he was also working on Ebola tests, and especially around a vaccine trial. I spoke with that team a couple weeks ago when they had just returned from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they were doing work on Ebola. So Heather, can you describe a little bit about what Patel is and where it's located? So Patel is a company um, that contracts and runs multiple labs. So they have a couple on Fort Detrick um, here in Frederick. So one of them is NBAC, which is has nothing to do with Ebola, but it's one of their bigger labs. Um, and that is something that they do to with a partnership with the FBI. So um, they also run, as a contractor, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Integrated Research Facility, which is the where the two people that we will be speaking with um, actually work. Um, and they're part of an international response team. It's a 10-member team, and they are basically sent out to places like uh, Liberia or DRC um, where an infectious pathogen is happening. And they go out to help with the local teams on the ground kind of build their um, organizations or build their facilities to be able to tackle the diseases on the ground. And when this team is working in a place like Liberia, how do they find out about the disease? And then once they get there, what are their first action steps to address what's going on? So with Liberia, they actually have an ongoing partnership with the NIH. Um, They're helping to run clinical trials with treatment and vaccination against Ebola. So they go down and help um, with what they might need. And so NIH is kind of their point of contact there. And with their experiences fighting Ebola, could you sort of define the the disease and how they sort of tackle it? So they aren't specifically tackling the disease here, um, especially what they were doing with the DRC. So Ebola is a um, a, a blood-based disease. Um, it's pretty um, unfortunate, and it was very deadly. Um, one of the things that kind of struck people with um when it first like broke out and got hyped up in 2014 was just how quickly it spreads. And part of that has to do with some of the practices that are done um, over in the countries that were being affected. Um, you really can't come in contact with a person when they have Ebola because it can spread really easily, even after that person has died, which was one of the issues is part of the funeral practices involved a lot of um, like touching the person who died. So that was helping to spread the disease. Um, but what they're doing right now in the DRC was very interesting because they actually weren't able to go out too far in the DRC to where some of the um, like the hospitals and the labs were because of security reasons. Um, but what they did do is help teach them how to run an assay, which is just a basic a test. 
So this test that they're running, um, they were actually running it on a bunch of different samples to teach them how to run this assay. Um, so one of the groups that they were doing it on was like people who were vaccinated. Um, they were running it on healthcare workers. In the case, they'd also teach them how to run a hot sample, which is like a sample of someone who actually has Ebola. So because they were teaching them, they actually knew in advance that they did have a person who is affected that they were testing so they could run for, um, you know, precautions and be safe. But then if they left, once they the two left, if these people ran a, uh, the test and got a hot sample, they would know how to handle it and keep themselves safe. And along with the religious practices and some of these more traditional beliefs that are sort of inhibiting doctors and other medical workers from treating the, the disease, what other roadblocks um, are these researchers running into that are hindering them from helping people and stopping Ebola. So one thing they talked about was, you know, when they're here on Fort Detrick, they are still actively studying things like uh, Ebola, but they're in a biosafety level four lab, which is one of the most secure labs that you have. It's, you know, got a bunch of like, you have to wear certain protective gear. You have, I believe it's sometimes you even have like two double walls, like just to make sure that this disease can't get out of the lab. But in a place like the DRC, you don't have that BSL-4. So you still do a lot of the same practices, they said, but it's also knowing that, you know, if something goes wrong, there isn't as easily uh, medical um, access. So like your health and safety officer is not on scene when you're in the DRC. But one other thing that was a huge obstacle for them um, came down to just some of the amenities that you take for granted here, um, like clean water. So the test won't run right if you have dirty water. So how do you get clean water to this area? Also, you have to keep things at certain temperatures, like something might be have to be incubated at a certain high temperature and something might be have to be frozen at a certain low temperature, but you need power for that. So you have to make sure that there is a way to get power out to some of these places that, depending on where they are, they might not have enough access to it or just might not be able to run something like that where you're running multiple fridges like you would might see if you went to the lab over on Fort Detrick. Yeah, the idea of medical infrastructure and what you have came up when Ebola was big in the news before because there was a lot of concern about it coming to the United States or several people who came back who had Ebola were quarantined here and there was a belief that they would start spreading it. But obviously the United States has a lot bigger medical infrastructure and can quarantine those people um, in ways that some of the West African countries just don't have that infrastructure set up to really stop the Ebola spreading. Yeah, and one thing they talked about is that, you know, the, this this two-person team that was part of this 10-member um, team, they're not coming in and solving the problems. Like, they don't come in with, you know, bring a ton of infrastructure. They're really there to teach. It's, um, you know, there are already people on the ground, people who are doctors, professor, professors, right? other healthcare professionals. There are some volunteers from places like the United States, but they're teaching them how to do things in with the means that they have so that they, um, they can leave and then, um, they do work with an institute up there um, to kind of study Ebola since it's something that's, you know, affecting their people probably more than it affects people here in the United States. Um, so they are really there just as like teachers. It's not coming in to try to solve Ebola or anything like that. And this Battelle team, since they've dealt with Ebola for a number of years now, how do they feel about the world's readiness or preparedness to take on the disease? So I didn't get a chance to really talk to them about that, but um, we did talk a little bit about just the attention to it this time um, and how, like, they said, like, yo, well, we're in the field, so we're reading the news all the time. And it's not like people aren't reporting on Ebola. Um, there are two um, Twitter accounts that I follow, one by Laura Garrett and then another by Ian McKay, I believe his name is. And they are constantly, every day, updating how many people have died from Ebola. So people are reporting on it. 
But you're not seeing the same thing that we saw in 2014 where, I mean, it was like a mass hysteria that it might come here. I don't think a lot of people might even realize that's happening right now over the NDRC. Um, and so they talked about that when they, you know, talk to their families and say where they're going. They it's, People are kind of like, oh, I didn't realize there was still Ebola there. Yeah, why do you think that is, that it's not getting as much coverage now as it did several years ago? I think, um, one, I mean, the outbreak, this is the second largest outbreak, but it's not nearly the numbers that we saw, and hopefully we won't have to see those numbers again. Um, and I think that also has to do with the, the news cycle. I mean, in 2014, we also weren't seeing the shooting and the terrorist attacks that we've seen that dominate our news cycle. So that takes people's attention away. And I think right now there is what you talked about, that fear it's coming here. So we cared a lot when it affected us. We don't really care if it's isolated and not going to come here. And we are in sort of the midst of a smaller public health crisis with the outbreaks of measles and other things that are really dominating the public health news. Which is kind of funny because I remember I was still in college when the first Ebola outbreak took um, happened, but I was in a like health science reporting class, and we were talking about you know just how contagious something like um, Ebola is, but it's actually um, measles is much more contagious. Um, I think it's like it's contagion factors 10 in Ebola, like four, which is like from one person, you can affect four people. But with measles, it's like one person, you can affect 10. So it's like also that weird perception, the same thing like, oh, I'm afraid I might die in a car uh, plane crash instead of getting in my car where I'm more likely to die. Something unknown and scary that made it, you know, played into our uh, hysteria and hype. And I remember with the sort of original Ebola crisis several years ago, there was a lot of talk about an Ebola vaccine and moving that along. Where does that stand now? So, I mean, that was one of the things that they talked about is that they're testing it on or they're testing this assay with people from who are vaccinated. So clearly there is some kind of vaccination. I think that's also what's going on with the Liberia um, clinical trials is that they're working on getting this vaccination. Um, so I think that, you know, is something that is still being actively pursued. That Patel team works in a biosafety level four lab on Fort Detrick. And biosafety level fours are one of the most intense and secure facilities where scientists study infectious diseases like Ebola or other hemorrhagic fevers. Now, Fort Detrick has a pretty long history with Ebola, starting in the late 70s and early 80s. Ebola was technically discovered in 1976, although it most likely existed long before that. Bonnie Daguerreau-Kemp, and I am the response team lead at the Integrated Research research facility. And my name is Gregory Coker, and I am in a a response associate study implementer at the integrated research facility. All right. So those are both a little fancy titles. So can you explain a little bit about what you do on a daily basis? Sure. So uh, we have a 10-person team, um, and our team, uh, when we're based in the United States, we work at the integrated research facility, which is a BSL-4 facility located at Fort Detrick. And then we also deploy for usually a month at a time um, to international locations where there have been outbreaks of high-consequence pathogens. So we have presence in West Africa, um, Liberia, Guinea, um, Mali, and uh, more recently, the DRC. All right. And so I believe, Gray, you were just in Liberia? I was, yes. I got back like two weeks ago. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing over there? So Liberia is a trip that our team makes often. We always have a two-man presence, or a two-person presence, rather, in Liberia. And our duties primarily now are associated with um, capacity building for the locals who are there, um, as well as helping out with a study called uh, PREVAC, 
which is a very long acronym, but it's essentially a vaccine trial to study the efficacy and durability of one of the vaccines that was developed for Ebola. All right. And how about in the DRC? So in the DRC, uh, we are supporting um, the randomized clinical trial that is underway there. And so this is the first ever evaluation of medical countermeasures to treat Ebola virus disease. Uh, and that's a National Institutes of Health sponsored trial. Um, so our team supports the RCT from abroad by providing uh, support to the local lab staff that are running the ETU labs. Um, we order equipment for them. Um, we conduct remote trainings. And then back in December, Greg and I uh, went to the DRC for 16 days. And we trained staff at um, the INRB, which is the Institute de Research um, um, INRB. I forget the acronym as well. It's okay. I'll make sure to put that in. Um, so what was it like over there? Uh, so it was actually a really great experience. Um, we were staying in Kinshasa um, in actually a, a very nice part of town. So um, we were a little bit spoiled. Um, By a little bit, she means significantly spoiled. Yeah. Um, so we were staying in a pretty nice hotel. Um, and located pretty close to the INRB, which is the, the central laboratory in Kinshasa. Um, and we trained a team of four individuals to run um, the serology assay that we use for measuring antibody response to Ebola vaccination or Ebola exposure. Okay, and so for our readers who are not biologists, what is serology? Serology means the study of serum specifically, or it's a, a component of blood. All right. And so how did what you did in DRC differ from what you were doing in Liberia? So it doesn't differ all that much. In terms of training, we trained them on a lot of the same assays that we use in Liberia. Um, where it might differ slightly is, uh, from Liberia is, in addition to the serology training, we also trained a number of the individuals um, in DRC to use uh, PPE. That's what we call personal protective equipment. And uh, the PPE that we would train them how to use is for the purpose of dealing with hot samples. Um, at this time, there's not any hot samples in Liberia and hasn't been for a number of years. But as we know, the ongoing outbreak in DRC means there is a very possible potential um, to work with live samples. Um, live, excuse me, not live, but uh, hot samples. And then um, not so much the staff that we were training specifically for serology, because usually the RCT staff is separate from the serology staff. However, uh, there is a possibility that we would train individuals and as a sort of train the trainer type of uh, program. And so once we train them how to do and uh, how to put on, donned off, and use PPE and work within that PPE, they can then train others locally without having to um, make an additional trip just to train them on how to do uh, sample processing or how to safely work with uh, potential pathogens. And so with this prote uh, personal protective equipment, what is that like out in the field versus what you wear when you're in the BSL-4 lab? So uh, when we work in the BSL-4 lab um, at Fort Detrick, we wear positive pressure suits um, that have air with de dedicated air supply. And so um, we are protected against uh, exposure to pathogens wearing those suits because there's constantly air blowing outward. So things can't get into the suit. Uh, when you're out in the field, you wear PPE. Um, there's different types depending upon the scenario that you're working in. Um, 
But for an outbreak scenario, um, the primary type of PPE that we train for is a full Tyvek, and then a PAPR, which is a positive air purifying respirator. Um, sorry, a powered air purifying respirator, um, which is um, on a belt unit, and it has filters in it for filtering the air that comes in. Um, and then it has uh, a hose that goes up the top um, to a shroud that you wear over your head. And then um, it requires a power source to use that type of PPE in the field, so we also train people to use uh, N95s and face shields as well if that technology isn't available in the field. And, and with the DRC, it, for the people who are out there where the outbreak is currently happening, are they able to wear that protective equipment? So it depends on the lab site and once again, you know, if power is available out there. So we have shipped our PAPR units out there, uh, but they're, the staff that are currently working in the field use um, respirators, N95 respirators and face shields. It's a more low-tech option. All right. So that was one difference between the BSL-4. What are some of the other challenges when you're out in the field versus when you're in a controlled lab? So I would say um, we just talked about the BSL-4 suit, how it's a, it's, um, a protective. Because it's positive pressured, uh, any leak, potential leak, uh, will vent outward, and so nothing can get into your suit. But um, how, you how you want to think about in terms of the field versus the lab is that the BSL-4 suit is sort of the last line of defense for any type of lab incident or possibility that could occur. So you never want to um, think about having your suit as even an option because the first option um, in terms of safely working in a lab is uh, your own, how, how careful you act, how slow you are, how um, slow not meaning like I'm going to take all the time in the world to do this operation, but deliberate. You want to know exactly what you're doing, how you're doing it, and how to work and accomplish the task that you're doing with the minimum of operations, because these are all potentially dangerous. And so um, with that mindset, the difference between the lab and the field is in the, in the lab here in the States, you have all of these environmental controls and facility and institutional-wide devices to protect you. So you have uh, biosafety cabinets, the air is a constant temperature, the air in your suit is a constant temperature, all your equipment has been calibrated and has records for it going recently. Um, there's precautions in case something happens, there's precautions in case those precautions fail, there's triple precautions on top of those precautions. And then when you're in the field, um, your mentality has to shift because instead of having all of these facility-wide things backing you up, all of a sudden, um, your PPE is no longer, it's still your last resort, but your last resort is a lot closer to your first line of defense you're training. Um, and so it's just, you have to be that much more careful and deliberate because you don't have any of these other options to fall back on. You have your safe lab practices, and then if you're lucky, you'll have some type of um, field analog for a biosafety cabinet. Most of the time you won't and you have your PPE. So it's about working carefully and knowing that you put all of your gear on appropriately and you know how to take it off appropriately. Because um, taking it off, what we call doffing, is just as important as donning. If you have any type of contaminant on your gloves and you're just flipping your gloves off uh, willy-nilly, you might splash something that ordinarily wouldn't be a big deal if you took it off properly. All right. So to switch a little bit back to Liberia, um, you mentioned you were working on pre-vax. Um, can you explain a little bit more about what that was and what that 
what you were doing there for that? Sure. Um, so uh, the pro the project is called um, Prevac. Do you remember what that acronym stands for? Uh, so Prevac is uh, it's Prevail Five. Um, Prevail is a clinical trial series, um, NIH clinical trials that are in Liberia. Um, there are currently up to ten at this point, and they are all looking at different research questions. So Prevail 1, for instance, was looking at uh, response to Ebola vaccination. Prevail 2 looked at um, response to Ebola and Ebola treatment. Prevail 3 follows survivors and so on and so forth. And then uh, Prevail 5, which is pre-vac, um, that's an evaluation, uh, uh, vaccine efficacy, um, a vaccine response study as well. It's so much larger, though. It's very big. Um, it involves... Uh, over a thousand uh, individuals, and then they have uh, blood draws that take place over uh, time courses, and then uh, the immune response. So our assay goes against the uh, uh, is an, an antibody against uh, Ebola GP. That's the glycoprotein. So viruses they have um, the Ebola is an RNA virus, and it has an outer coating called a glycoprotein. That's essentially the shell. And uh, the vaccine is designed to teach your immune system to attack that glycoprotein shell. And uh, our assay detects human antibodies that go against that specific um, shell. And we can test how effective, theoretically, because we're not actually giving the vaccine, uh, we're not actually like, there's not a live outbreak going on right now. And so we have to do what's called a um, correlate of protection. Um, so we read the GP antibody response that individuals have and uh, interpret that the higher GP response means the higher, more effective vaccine uh, was given. And so we, at different time points, we test the levels of GP antibodies in these people's uh, serum, and we see the level, how much it responds initially, and how long it lasts over time, if it decreases, if it levels off, and um, just try to really quantify and qualify how effective and durable the immunity provided by the vaccine is. And, and it's more of looking at um, an antibody response and not really evaluating efficacy, vaccine efficacy. So just to back up a little bit for people who are not usually used working with Ebola, how do you, are you giving, um, like do you just put the Ebola antibodies into the blood uh, serum that you're testing, or how do you get Ebola to interact with the vaccine without actually infecting somebody with Ebola? So the vaccine um, in Prevac is... Is it the VSV one? Mm -hmm. So um, there's a virus called uh, vasocentral virus. And um, essentially, it's a... I believe it's commercially available. It's a, called a vaccine vector. And um, what was done is you insert the genes for Ebola glycoprotein into this virus. And so essentially... Vesicular stomatitis virus. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Vesicular stomatitis virus. Um, and uh, thus you have this fairly relatively harmless virus, but it has the shell of Ebola on it. Mm -hmm. And so you're giving people this vaccine and the immune system thinks and is being taught to attack what it sees as Ebola, but it's actually this harmless virus. So it's basically protein recognition. It's showing uh, your immune system a protein that's commonly present on that virus so that if it sees it again, it recognizes it. All right. And so for the Ebola um, vaccines that are being worked on, when did that push for more vaccination come about? 
How do you mean? I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> so was it after, like, the 2014 outbreak where we saw a lot of people getting infected that people started thinking we need to actually have vaccines for this disease? So a lot of these vaccines have been in development for a while. Um, the Turner, the number of vac- – I, I know there was another one uh, developed uh, in response to 2014, but it really was a 2014 outbreak that um, spurred on a lot of the continual development for um, – all the vaccines and a lot of the work for it. In West Africa in particular, um, a lot of the larger vaccine studies were follow-ups to the outbreak. And then now we're seeing in the DRC, um, you know, uh, it being used as a prevention strategy. So as of today, over 129,000 people have been vaccinated in the country. And they are thinking that it could be um, one of the main contributors to why we're not seeing greater scale of disease outbreak. So do you think that we're getting to a point where we are prepared for maybe the next outbreak if it comes up again? I would say that's a layered question. There are many um, aspects to outbreak response, one of them being vaccination and public health response. And then also, you know, the response to actually dealing with the clinical aspects of disease, um, providing um, good clinical care for Ebola. Um, those standards are constantly being um, refined as we're learning more about the virus and its disease course. And then also the laboratory testing that goes hand in hand with that, and that's really where our area of expertise is. And we've certainly learned in the course of working in West Africa, um, definitely a lot of lessons learned for the best ways to, to test for the virus itself and for antibodies to the virus in different um, groups of people. So. You know, those groups that I mentioned before, people who um, became ill, people who were contacts of people who became ill, people who were vaccinated, healthcare workers, um, community workers, all those types of um, people. Yeah, I would, I would agree with Bonnie. Um, it is a layered question. Um, it's, there's so many other factors that go into responding to an outbreak that are determined on where an outbreak is and uh, circumstances at the time that can dramatically affect how you respond. Uh, but what is undoubtedly true is uh, as a result of all the work that has been done um, prior and especially since the 2014 outbreak, there's certainly a lot more tools available to whoever responds. All right. And so with the, um, the outbreak that's currently happening in the DRC, do you think that people are aware that it's happening? I would say certainly not to the level that they were aware of the previous outbreak. So the previous outbreak was much larger than this outbreak. And um, this outbreak is the second largest Ebola outbreak in history. Um, and I think a lot of the news coverage has kind of focused on all of the uh, instability in the region and the violence that's occurring in the region. Um, but it definitely merits more attention. And is there a reason that we're just seeing out that we're seeing the outbreaks in 2014 and 2018, 2019 now that we didn't see in the 1980s or 1970s when the U.S. first heard about Ebola? I would say um, part of it may be just simply uh, there's a lot more people around. Um, there's been a lot more growth um, and. There's also uh, the world in terms of communication is a lot smaller. So we may have only been hearing about Ebola since 
1976 when it was first um, discovered. But to say that it wasn't around before then, I believe is wrong because all these things have been around for many, 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 many years. Um, so it could simply just be that we didn't hear about it because it was always in remote regions. Yes, and as population increases and people move into more rural areas, I think it will be, be more common. Not to mention just transport networks. Um, you're talking about in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, these areas you had to walk to or take a helicopter to, or if you're lucky, there's a boat. Um, you could hop on the river. Um, but nowadays, there's a lot more built-up infrastructure. Um, it's still limited in terms of what we're used to here in the United States, but um, relative to how it was, it's just much more of an interconnected um, nature over there. All right, and so what's next for your team in terms of Ebola research? So um, when we're back here in the States, uh, when we're working in BSL-4, our team develops um, diagnostics that are field deployable for high-consequence viral pathogens. So in addition to um, Ebola di diagnostics, we're looking into diagnostics for Lassa and things like NEPA. Um, and then for the current outbreak in DRC, we continue to support the RCT from abroad. Uh, and then we're also planning future trips where we'll be back on the ground helping the team that we trained in Kinshasa to increase their throughput. And then also training uh, individuals who will deploy to those field sites, those field lab ETU sites, to use the PPE that we described to potentially use some of the assays that we use um, and to support them in any way that we can. All right. Well, I think I'm out of questions, but anything else you think our listeners should know? Uh, just that the staff in DRC are really great. You know, they're dealing with a very, very difficult situation and a very difficult time, um, complicated by a lot of different factors, and um, they really are heroes. They do great work every day dealing with a lot of difficult things. I would say that applies um, not just to, I mean, especially DRC now, but uh, all of the uh, local staff that we've interacted with, uh, whether it be DRC or Mali or Liberia or Guinea, um, they're all uh, incredible people who uh, will learn as much as you can teach them and just want to see uh, their country survive, um, prosper, and get through whatever difficult times happen. Um, they're all just people. You go over there and everyone wonders like what it's like, is it, is it really different? But people are people, whether you're here, whether you're uh, in the United States, and everyone's just concerned um, for them and theirs. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about what your work is and about Ebola, and we really appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. To learn more about what Patel is doing to take on some of these infectious diseases like Ebola, you can check out the article in the Frederick News Post Health section. The International Response Team is just one of the laboratories on Fort Detrick working on Ebola. The United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases has been working on the hemorrhagic fever since the early 80s. The lab, as well as some of its veterinarians, biologists, and other staff were featured as part of the National Geographic Channel's The Hot Zone, which starred Juliana Margulies. It is a TV adaptation of the book The Hot Zone by Richard Preston. So to talk about Ebola in general, as well as some of the recent advances 
from you, Samrid. I asked Dr. John Dye to come join me in the podcast studio. So I am Dr. John Dye. I work at the USAMRID, United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, and the Chief of Viral Immunology. Great. And so Dr. Dye is here today to talk to us about Ebola. So I was hoping just to start off, just in case people missed out on the 2014 outbreak, can you tell us a little bit about where Ebola, what Ebola is and where it is right now? Sure. So Ebola is a viral hemorrhagic fever. So it's a virus that infects individuals who come into contact with a animal or someone else who's already been infected. And basically what happens is normally in between seven to 20 days, those individuals get very sick. And depending on which type of Ebola that you get, you have a pretty good chance of not being able to survive that infection. Some of them as high as 90%. All right. So in 2014, we had a pretty major outbreak and that was the biggest one that we've had so far? Correct. So. In 2014-2015, there was an outbreak that occurred in three countries in Western Africa, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and New Guinea. And there were about 25 to 26,000 people that were infected with about 14 to 15,000 deaths that were recorded. Uh, So Ebola first came into us knowing about it in 1976. And from 1976 all the way to 2014, there were only about a combined 1,000 to 2,000 cases of Ebola. And then when you compare that to what happened in 2014, you have about, what, tenfold more. So it was a really a large outbreak that occurred, and nobody really expected it. All right. Now, I understand that we're currently in the second largest outbreak right now. That is true, yes. So between 2014-2015 and the outbreak now, what have we learned to help us prepare for this current outbreak? I don't know if prepare is the right word, hopefully, but we have learned a lot. So in the 2014 outbreak, going into that outbreak, if you look at the landscape of Ebola research and then what was available on the market, there was nothing. There was really, there was no vaccine. There was no treatment that could be given to individuals other than just giving them uh, supportive care, uh, making sure that their, uh, all of their chemistries were okay with uh, additional water and things like that. During the 2014 outbreak, there was actually investigational vaccines and treatments that actually started to go into the field. And some of those actually proved to be what appear to be efficacious. So it means that some of those vaccines and treatments actually seem to be helping the individuals that got them. So now in this current outbreak, they actually have designed clinical trials to test some of those vaccines and treatments that were first pilot tested in 2014. That's much better than where we were in 2014. Most definitely. Oh, yeah. We are in a much better shape. Uh, It still is challenging because where these outbreaks occur are very rural areas. It's very difficult to implement these vaccines and therapeutics in a regimented way. It's much harder than it would you could imagine than it would be to do in the U.S. or in another more developed nation. So there's still a lot of challenges that we have to overcome and we have to test to see whether the vaccines and therapeutics are actually efficacious. But we're on the right track. And what about Ebola and the types that affect humans that makes it so challenging to have a vaccine for or have appropriate treatments for? Right. So why is it so? uh, Well, honestly, it's not that difficult a a virus to make a vaccine to. It's just if we think about the numbers of the people who've been infected with Ebola in the past, they're really small compared to HIV or the flu or many other viruses that receive a lot of attention. So prior to the 2014 outbreak, there really was not a a lot of attention that was given to Ebola. 
But then when that outbreak occurred, it became obvious that emerging infectious diseases like Ebola could actually come across oceans like it did to the U.S. when people actually migrated back to the U.S. from Liberia. So it became a global problem, not just a local problem. And when things become global problems, then hopefully you get global answers. So that's where we kind of at right now. And so USAMRIT's had a pretty long history with Ebola. So what are some of the interesting things that you're working on now to look at Ebola or ways that we can treat it? Sure. So the what's really great, so right in our own backyard here in Frederick, Maryland at Fort Detrick, uh, USAMRIT is located. And all of the vaccines and treatments that were either developed or tested that are being used in West Africa and now in the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, in this current outbreak, they were all developed or tested right at USAMRD. So it's pretty amazing. So what are we working on now? Well, we're working on monoclonal antibodies. So antibodies are made by a human being in response to a virus or bacteria. And you can actually make these antibodies specific for a particular virus or bacteria. So we're developing new monoclonals that can work against Ebola. In addition, there are new vaccines that are being tested in addition to the vaccine that is currently going into humans. So next generation vaccines are being tested. And there are also small molecules, so chemical drugs that are being tested at USAMRD right now. All right. And so talk to me a little bit about safety, because Ebola is not something that you want to accidentally catch. Oh, no, definitely not. Uh, so the safety, the precautions that we take when we're working with it uh, at USAMRD is we work in a biosafety level four containment suite, which basically is a giant, <laughs> giant cinder block room with negative air pressure. So basically everything only flows into the room. Nothing can come out. And then while as, an, as a researcher, when I'm working with it, if you've seen the movies or if you've seen the new Hot Zone show on National Geographic, I wear one of those large blue suits, which you plug into an airline to create a positive pressure inside so everything is flowing out of the suit. We're always wearing double gloves. We've been trained for several years before we even go into the suite. So uh, for us to work with it, it's very safe. It's a little more difficult when you're out in the field, though. How do you work with it there? Because you're not going to have that containment. And do people from USAMRAID go out to places like Liberia and actually make sure that the vaccines that were tested in USAMRAID are working? Yes. So we're part of the teams that are involved with the testing. So when you give someone a vaccine, if the vaccine's working right, they never get sick. So how do you know that if they ever came into contact, right? So what we can do is we can actually take some of the blood from all the people that got vaccinated and see, well, did they actually get infected on top of that vaccine? So that's what they're doing. So there are teams that are over in the DRC right now. There were teams that were in all three countries, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and uh, New Guinea during the 2014 outbreak. All right. And so looking at 2014, the current outbreak now, with all the technology that's gone into vaccines and treatments, do you expect to see another third outbreak anytime soon? So the development of the countermeasures really are independent of the outbreak. Because what happens, so Ebola doesn't normally affect humans. It's a spillover event. So it normally resides in an animal. And then when the humans come into contact with that animal that's been infected, it spills over into them. It's, we're not a natural host. So those spillover events are going to continue to happen in places like Africa and other places, especially with the 
globalization of their markets because there's a lot of deforestation. So you're changing the ecosystems of all of the animals that live. So you're coming into closer contact with those animals if you're in those rural areas. So we will continue to see outbreaks of Ebola and other emerging infectious diseases. There's really no way around that. The best we can hope is to be prepared with those countermeasures like vaccines and treatments. All right. And so you mentioned the hot zone, which is on National Geographic, which is kind of raising awareness about Ebola right now. Correct. One of the things that I've heard is that people don't know quite as much about the second outbreak as they did the first outbreak. Do you think that this is going to help keep Ebola on people's mind and maybe help them be aware of future outbreaks? Right. So I would hope that the hot zone, the the show, which is actually quite well done, um, they took some liberties, but you know, TV and movies always take liberties. Uh, I would hope that that would just raise the global awareness because, as you said, I am guessing that a lot of the listeners don't even know that there's an outbreak going on in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They all heard about the outbreak that occurred in 2014, but it was actually going on for a whole year before the United States really started paying attention. And when we started paying attention was when one individual got a plane on a plane in Liberia and flew to Houston, Texas. And all of a sudden it was in our backyard. So I'm hoping with education like this show is, uh, there's also a nice documentary that's on after the show, which goes through the history of Ebola, kind of some of the things we've been talking about today, Heather. So I'm hoping that it'll keep people in tune to those emerging infectious diseases. So then as a community, we're all better prepared. And so just to give a little bit of a spoiler, the hot mm. zone, um, I do understand that there is a type of Ebola, one of the strains that is not dangerous to humans. Correct. So there are, di- there are five different flavors of Ebola, if you want to think of it like that. Unfortunately, there are flavors that can kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the flavor that cannot kill humans, or we don't believe kills humans, actually first occurred in Reston, Virginia which is right down the road, right out Route 7, uh, down in Northern Virginia, at a place called Hazleton Laboratories. And that's what this movie, and originally the book, The Hot Zone, was about, was there was an outbreak in a monkey colony of this particular virus, and it was the identification of that virus because no one was expecting Ebola to be in the United States. So it would the people coming over from Liberia in 2014, it was not the first time we've seen Ebola here in the U.S., but it's probably the first time most of your listeners have heard of it. And so you mentioned monkeys. Is that one of the natural hosts of Ebola? So it's a host of the of Ebola. Um, it depends on your a host, definitely. Uh, a reservoir, maybe not. So a reservoir is an animal that lives with the virus, but the virus doesn't kill them. The virus actually kills the monkeys too, so it's not a very good host. If you're a virus, you don't really want to kill your host. You'd prefer just to hang out in it and then spread to other people, so it's not a very effect- effective in that way. All right. And now Ebola is not the only hemorrhagic fever that USAMRIN works with, correct? Correct. So we work with, there's a lot of arena viruses like Lassa virus, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus. Uh, those are all both in um, Africa as well as Europe. And then if you look down into South America and Central America, there's Hunin, uh, Chapare. There's a ton of different viruses that all have this similar pathology. All right. Well, I really appreciate coming on and explaining everything that we need to know about Ebola right now. Is there anything else you think listeners should know? 
No, just I hope you enjoy the show. It really shows light of Frederick and Thurmond and our whole area and shows you a lot of the good research that's actually going on right next door to where you live. So it's pretty exciting, actually. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. So as Dr. Dai just mentioned, Usamarit and its scientists were featured in The Hot Zone, which just wrapped up on National Geographic Channel. The Hot Zone is a TV adaptation of Richard Preston's book of the same name, which discusses one of the first times Ebola came to the United States. And two of the main people involved in working with Ebola when it came to the United States were Colonel Nancy and Colonel Jerry Jacks. They both called in today to talk a little bit about working with Ebola and what it was like to see themselves being portrayed by actors as part of the television series. Yeah, this is Jerry Jacks. Uh, uh, I'm a veterinarian and a retired Army colonel. Right. And this is Nancy Jacks. And the same, I'm a retired veterinarian and a retired Army colonel. All right. So um, if you could walk me back to the 1980s, when did you first learn about Ebola and that your work would involve studying hemorrhagic fevers? Uh, I started it in um, late in 79, early 80. Uh, the Institute, USAMRID, had uh, samples on file and they were just starting the experimental work in it. All right. And and when you had Ebola, were these all strains that were known to affect humans, or did you know that there were strains that might only affect animals? No. At that time, um, Ebola especially, but we were working with Ebola and Marburg, um, we only had uh, lethal strains. That's, that's all we knew about. At that point in time, we knew nothing about non-lethal strains. Uh, Respin was the first non-lethal strain that surfaced, and the quadruple-gray Ivory Coast strain is one that killed chim- killed chimps, uh, and it did make it someone sick, but it's not lethal. Yeah, but no, they, but they, not that's not until late, like late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, in the 80s, um, it wasn't known that Ebola was uh, zoonotic or would affect humans, and there was no idea really what the uh, uh, what the reservoir was. So uh, it was only known to affect humans uh, with very lethal consequences. All right. So now I know that um, the story was portrayed in the hot zone by Richard Preston, and now that's now a National Geographic show. But um, could you just very briefly tell me a little bit about how you, or what you your role was in helping to discover the Reston um, strain of the virus? Uh, as far as what I did, actually, I'm a veterinary pathologist. Tim Geisbert, or Tom Geisbert, is actually a microbiologist, as is Peter Jarling. And the the, sam, the uh, Philo virus was first identified by Tom and Peter. Um, once they were pretty sure what they had, then I drove down to, to Reston with Dr. C.J. Peters because we wanted to look at tissues from all the monkeys that had died in the facility that there was no fresh tissue available for culture. So I'd done a lot of work with it. It, You know, I just asked for the livers and spleens of all the monkeys that had died, and they clearly had signs consistent with Ebola. But that's basically what veterinary pathologists do. We dissect, we do autopsies, and we read glass slides. And that those, uh, uh, those specialties complement one another so that... Uh, a diagnosis is confirmed associated with uh, both 
uh, electron microscopy and uh, other diagnostics to include uh, uh, to include microscopic slides. All right. And so when you knew that you were working with Ebola, since you didn't know that it was non-lethal at this time, what was going through your head knowing that there might have been a strain of a potentially lethal Ebola on U.S. soil? Well, the first thing that goes through your head is, you know, it's absolutely critical to have a correct diagnosis. And so what Jerry just mentioned, I mean, we had microscopic evidence, evidence, we had electron microscope evidence, and then we had uh, uh, light level microscopy evidence. And so we were very sure of our diagnosis at that time. And clinical signs. And, and clinical signs. Um, and the monkeys. The the interesting thing about this virus, and it, it has always happened that way, uh, the animals, the monkeys had a dual infection, simian hemorrhagic fever and Ebola. And we noted both of those on microbiology as well as immunohistochemistry. Essentially, the only reagents that we had to check it with were Ebola Zaire, um, we had two strains of Marburg and three strains of Ebola, and it it was very clearly positive for Ebola. That's the first time Ebola had ever been identified in a non-human host. Uh, it was also the first time that it had been seen outside of Africa, uh, and these were Asian monkeys. They had no connection with Africa. They were imported from the Philippines. So there were just a lot of, as as I said, your brain just kind of, there's no doubt what you're seeing, but it's just not making sense because it presented in a way we had never seen before. But we we clearly felt that at the time, and the entire time we went through this, that we were dealing with Ebola Zaire. And, and so, you know, jumping ahead to 2014, and even now when we're seeing outbreaks of um, lethal strains of Ebola in, in some African countries, um, did you think, think that we were going to be seeing outbreaks when you were first seeing Ebola in the 80s? Well, I think it, we all felt it was inevitable. Typically, even though there's a lot about the virus that we don't know, we know it spreads easily from person to person through handling tissue, you know, burial rituals. We did, we did not know until we actually proved it experimentally that you could get it from contact with your eyes, mucous membranes, or that you could get it from eating. Um, and eating and eating an infected monkey, uh, and we had actually proved that experimentally. Doubt that it was it was going to reappear. That's typically what it did. The, the at at that time it it had always broken out in very small villages, um, and basically they controlled it by quarantine. When you got into bigger cities, that's almost impossible to do, because particularly in 2014 and now. You, you don't have real stable government structures. And so it's re- very difficult to enforce any kind of quarantine. So with the 2014 it, uh, outbreak, it seemed like it was always in the media and there was tons of articles coming out and everyone was talking about it. Um, but now we're in the second largest outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it, it hasn't been talked about as much. Is, do you have any uh, reasoning for why people might not be talking about Ebola like they did in 2014? You know, uh I don't really know for sure, but our, I think our sense is that, uh, you know, it becomes old news. It's over there. And, uh, you know, once, you know, once something takes on a, uh, you know, a long time frame, um, it becomes less newsworthy. I mean, if you look at the war in, uh, 
uh, Syria that's going on. Uh, you know, people get tired of it, and uh, there are other things that end up being uh, more newsworthy. That's that that would be my sense of it. All right, and, and so now uh, National Geographic just had the Hot Zone um, come out. Um, I have to admit, I haven't seen all the episodes, but I, I did see the one that was at USAMRED. Um and with that, do you think a show like that can raise awareness of Ebola? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we, one of the reasons that we uh, cooperated as much as we did with uh, the people doing the uh, uh, the documentary or the, 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 the miniseries and the documentary, by the way, I would watch the documentary if you're, uh, if, if you're interested in Ebola, um, is because we think that... Uh, the bottom line is that the that the miniseries has a really good uh, a, a really good message, which is we have to be prepared. We can't wait for uh, these things to happen because um, we will be behind the eight ball rather than in front of uh, any potential outbreaks and any public health uh, issues that will arise. So uh, even though you know our sense is that the uh, that the docu or that the uh, miniseries was based upon a true event. Uh, you know, there were there there was a lot of uh, dramatic. Uh, there, yeah, there there was a lot of dramatic uh, liberality taken as far as the story is concerned. You know, it's our. You know, we believe that the uh, the book, The Hot Zone, written written by Preston. Uh, was basically nonfiction. We don't know of anything in there that, you know, you couldn't say isn't true. Uh, I think that in the miniseries, uh, they took a lot of, uh, uh, you know, they they spun up the story in a, you know, in a fairly significant way. But the, um, the message is a good one that, uh, you know, infectious disease is a very, very serious issue. And, you know, in our, it's our belief that, you know, we will never really get ahead of infectious disease, that uh, we'll continue to see either reemerging diseases or uh, new diseases that uh, uh, are brand new uh, from now on. And so we really have to uh, keep our infrastructure up and our research programs uh, robust enough to be able to uh, respond adequately. All right. So you mentioned that the... Hot Zone, the, the miniseries, took a little bit of liberties. Um, so what was it like you know, watching people portray you on, on a television show um, or portray things that happened to you? Well, it's a little surreal. I mean, you're, you're looking at a person that has your name tag on and is dressed like you and walks like you and talks like you, and, and it's not you. Uh, I think Juliana did a really good job with the character, I think the producers wanted that character to accomplish everything. And I, I think if there's a message that I would want to send out, people have to understand how really expensive and complex this research is. There are multiple teams of people that were all working on this at the same time. And uh, it, it takes a concerted team effort. It's a very expensive type of research, but we have to have basic research in order to keep these efforts going. And typically what happened with Ebola after the 76 outbreak, when it goes away and nobody sees it, it's sort of an orphan virus. And then politically, the research doesn't get funded. And so when it pops out again, you have to start all over. And once you turn those research faucets off, they're hard to turn back on. 
Yeah, one of the things about watching this is the the miniseries was inspired by a true event. And, you know, most of the stuff that happens in the miniseries, there is a basis, you know, there there was a a basis in the actual, in in an event uh, that provided uh, fodder for the story. But, you know, with... Uh, with a Hollywood sort of a, an event like this, uh, they compress characters. Uh, they attribute things that uh, are done to uh, uh, to somebody that perhaps didn't uh, didn't really do that. But you know, when it comes out the end, it uh, uh, most of the things that happen are realistic. But but it is uh, you know it's it's interesting to watch. Uh, you know the characterizations that they uh, that they put to you, and uh, uh, I think you know I think in the miniseries they captured the uh, atmospherics of working in the lab. Uh, you know it's a little bit heavy-handed and not as lighthearted as some you know as uh, as a daily work uh, uh, was, and certainly during an you know an emergency like we experienced during the uh, Ebola outbreak, but. Uh, I think they did a nice job of that, and I think basically people have enjoyed watching the uh, 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 watching the miniseries. And uh, if it if it increases the uh, uh, if it increases the uh, interest in infectious disease, then I think it's a good thing. We really uh, and and I would encourage you to watch the documentary. What we noticed from a lot of our friends, because it had a different title, it it didn't just automatically come up on DVRs, but the the documentary is really extremely well done. And it's called Going Viral, also on National Geographic. Perfect. I will definitely make sure to check that out. Um, You know, just a very lighthearted question, but uh, people often joke, you know, who who would you imagine playing yourself in a biopic? And you guys kind of had that opportunity. So were these the actors that you had in mind if someone had asked you who you thought might play you in several years? Actually, we had no input into the script at all. Uh, We didn't. The actors and the entire casting crew had already been cast. We didn't. We were not involved with the script or the storyline at all. We. Juliana did call me periodically, and and the producers did call Jerry periodically. They were for things like uniform details and, uh, you know, issues like that. But we had no script input, so. I was holding out for Danny DeVito, but he was unavailable. All right. And just my last question is, oh, you know, one of the things that really stood out about the 2014 outbreak was just some of the hysteria that was around um, Ebola. And I was just wondering if you thought that the hot zone um, was able to give the message that you've mentioned, but also balance not making people so afraid of this disease that if they don't go into hysteria. Well, I think, and I believe Jerry feels the same way. I mean, the reason that book was so popular was it really spun things up uh, and it made the disease very dramatic and very scary. And it also was written in text that a really bright elementary school kid could read it or somebody who was in college could read it. I think the thing, the best thing Jerry and I both feel that came out of the book was the tremendous interest in science and medicine uh, that it created. And we get, we get letters and notes or people come up to us all the time and just say, you know, 
I became a veterinarian because I watched the hot zone. I became a doctor. I became a microbiologist because they read that book. And I think that's the, the best thing that the book brought to the table, in my opinion. Well, you know, the thing about Ebola is that um, as far as the hysteria is concerned, uh, it killed 10 or 12 or 14,000 people in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and West Africa. So it's a pretty terrible disease. <laughs> and so, you know, some of that, uh, you know, hysteria is one way to describe it. But I think that, uh, you know, there, there, there's a factor that says that you should be uh, concerned about this disease. It is a very, very significant uh, pathogen. Uh, luckily, it doesn't transmit from one person to the other in a very simple way, like, in, you know, in an aerosol uh, form. If it were to change or if it were to mutate, uh, then it would be a very, very horrible disease. And so um, I think people are right to be uh, concerned about Ebola. Now, you know, they don't need, we don't need to be hysterical about it. Uh, but it is a dangerous disease, and there are many, many other diseases that have the potential to be uh, very significant also. So um, I think for the average person, they don't need to be hysterical about it, but I think they do need to be concerned. All right, and to end on an up note, um, are you encouraged by some of the research that's been done in the past couple of years from places like USAMRIT or the National Institutes of Health um, or the CDC on Ebola? Absolutely. Very much, yes, very much uh there are so there are potential vaccines in the pipeline. Uh, there's a lot of study on the pathology, on the uh, pathogenesis, for instance, identifying bats as a potential vector. We always kind of felt like it was bats, but we could never find a bat that was actually infected. So uh, that knowing the reservoir is really what's critical here because we we pretty well know that humans get it from eating bushmeat or from direct contact with bat fecal material. But we didn't know any of that for years and years and years. And I believe there's a vaccine that's being used uh, for healthcare providers in, uh, uh, in West Africa. And I think with, a, with an efficacious vaccine, uh, they will be able to ring vaccinate uh, outbreaks. And, uh, and, and so I think... Uh, all of the work and all of the uh, research that was done on Ebola at at Samarit and at the CDC and elsewhere um, has paid off, and so that you know that's the reason we need something like uh, uh, you know we need places like Samarit. So uh, hats off to the scientists who were able to develop that uh, uh, that vaccine. And I, I think from my from my perspective, the most important thing is to protect the healthcare workers. I mean, it's all important, but to protect, you know, the po- if you can protect the healthcare workers, you can protect the population. Because when people are wearing these crazy spacesuits, you know, it makes them a little bit nervous. And so it, it's it's a uh, it's a two-edged sword. But certainly, if we can protect nosocomial infection of healthcare workers, is still happening. And we would hope with the vaccine that we can protect the healthcare workers, who in turn can then protect the population and administer vaccines. And, you know, it's just, it's a difficult, difficult task. All right. Well, thank you both so much for taking time to talk with me about this. Okay. Thank you. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Frederick Uncut is produced by Heather Mangilio. And Wyatt Massey. And edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.